0: Church, good to see uh, all of you. If you're new with us, my name's Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to share with you from the scriptures today. You can turn with me to Mark chapter 11. We've been working our way through Mark. Parents, if you have a, a child up through fifth grade and you'd like for them to go to some age-specific teaching that's offered now, you can simply walk uh, your little one out to the patio, and there'll be somebody there to help you take them. Of course, it's always fine to stay here in the room. Um, we are, uh, as I said, journeying through Mark, and we'll pick that up in just a second. Before we uh, move into the message, uh, I have two things to let you know about. Um, one, one happy and one sad. I'll start with the happy. Um, you may or may not have noticed when you came in that there is a card on your seat, and if you would grab that, Um, I'd love to point out what this is. Uh, This coming Wednesday night starts this semester's round of Wednesday night classes we call Disciple Makers. Uh, This church exists just like every other church to make disciples and help churches. And so our reason for existence is to share the gospel and help people come to know Jesus and then grow up in Jesus and go serve and bless and help other churches. And that's how Christianity has spread around the world. These uh, series of four classes on Wednesday night, four semesters, exist to help you learn how to do that. And so, if you haven't taken those yet, our hope is that everybody who calls this church their home would uh, go through those. And so, uh, this coming Wednesday night at 6:30, across the lawn in the Christian Challenge Building, we have a preview night. So you're not committing by coming, but if you could. Uh, show up, and you could just learn more about what it is and what the commitment would be. We'd love to have you there. So that's on Wednesday night. Um, the second thing is, uh, is a, a very hard announcement uh, to make, but many of you know uh, Scott and Lisa Wakefield. Lisa is here this morning. Good morning. Um, yesterday, Scott was uh, hiking with some friends and fellow church members in Sedona, and uh, he had a heart attack and suddenly uh, died. And so that is a huge shock to all of us. And uh, I've always thought you're a brave woman. Coming today is especially heroic. We're praying for you, Lisa. We love you. We're so sorry. That's why he married you, you, because you're brave? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Scott and Lisa have been involved in so many things here. Uh, Many of you have spent Time with Scott. Scott led a group of a small group in disciple makers for many years, and so uh, we're grieving with you and just commit ourselves to supporting you in whatever you need in the coming days. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, our hearts are heavy uh, for Scott's passing. Um, it's it's so sudden, and that's the, the part of the shock of it. And yet, Father, we know from before the foundation of the world, that you numbered Scott's days. And then, as we sang in that last song, uh, that there is life beyond the grave, and Scott is in your very presence today. And so he's doing fine. And yet, the rest of us, Lisa and Emily especially, are grieving. God, would you grant them the comfort that only you can? And please use us and their friends and family to come alongside them and support them in the hours, days, weeks, and months ahead. We thank you, Father, that Scott has left a legacy of ministry, and we pray that that would be an example to all of us. The fact is, none of us know when we will pass away, and so we ought to live each day As though it could be the last, that's very hard to actually do. And yet, Scott prioritized you and people. And we thank you for the example that he's left. As we turn now to your scriptures, we pray that you would help us to be attentive to the lesson that this gives. And we pray that your mercy and presence would be clear to Lisa. In Jesus' name, amen. Our uh, journey this year... Through the book of Mark has, has lasted thus far eight and a half months. If you're new to, to Christianity, there are four books in the Bible that are essentially biographies of the time that Jesus spent on earth. Those four books, one of them we're working our way through seeking to get to know Him better. This eight and a half month long journey has covered a span of 33 years of historical sort of timeline, and yet this morning we come to what is the last section in the book of Mark, and it's as though the the author pushes the slow-mo button, and the action will begin to go incredibly slow compared to the rest of the book, because for, for 10 chapters we've covered 33 years, and in the last six we'll cover only seven days. These last seven days show us that there is an intense focus on the final week of Jesus' life and ministry because it is the most important week of his life. And it is the most important week there has ever been in human history. Our prayer for this morning and the rest of the Sunday mornings we have together as a church over the rest of the year, Lord willing, is that. Regardless of where each one of us are in our own spiritual journeys, as a result of really carefully considering the final week in Jesus' life, each one of us will sort of take the next step in coming to know Him more clearly and loving Him more dearly as a result of doing a deep dive in these seven days that changed the whole history of the world. This morning, Isabel Hond, one of our campus missionaries to ASU, is going to come and read for us. She told me a few minutes ago she almost forgot, and so would you rub that in each time you see her? She loves the first gathering, but not you. Isabel, with that introduction, read for us.
1: Um, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, he went out to Bethany with the twelve.
0: Thank you. This morning I hope to show you three things from this passage and to help us get a sense of the significance of this text. I feel like I just heard a computer starting. Did I imagine that? No. What are you jokers doing back there? Three things from this text. First, we see from this passage that the promised King has come. The promised King has come. From Mark chapter 8, verse 31 onward, Jesus has repeatedly told His disciples again and again and again, I'm going to go to Jerusalem where I will suffer and die. And yet, they didn't understand. They didn't get it. He told them, I'm going to suffer and die in place of sinners that they might be made right with God. At this point, he's been on a slow, steady journey through chapter 9 and 10 that lasted several months, making his way to Jerusalem. And Mark chapter 11, what Isabel just read, recounts for us his final approach and entrance into the city. Now I mentioned earlier that there's four biographies of Jesus: Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, all covering the same period of time. And there are only a handful of events that took place in Jesus' life that all four of the books mention. This is one of them. And that's a clue to us, just how significant this is. Every detail matters. Jesus carefully orchestrated each moment. Because it teaches us specific things about Him. What happened in Mark in these opening verses of chapter 11 stands in sharp contrast to the rest of Jesus' ministry. There are many things here that are different in His behavior than had preceded the last 33 years of His life. Let me point out just two of them for you. First, there are many times in the Gospels where people encountered Jesus, He did something for them. And then he told them, as you're leaving, don't tell people who I am. Don't tell them. Hold that news for a while. And yet here in Mark chapter 11, there's none of that. There is the cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus made no attempt to silence them. In fact, he received that praise as appropriate. The word Hosanna means save us or save us now we pray. It is a quotation from Psalm 118 and it's a psalm that for centuries as the Jews had made their way into the city of Jerusalem they would have shouted that song in praise to God asking God to deliver them, to rescue them, to save them. In the most important moments it would have been one of their most important songs, and Jesus made no attempt again to silence them. It is as though He's finally saying, all the praise, all the recognition, all the honor is right. Now, a second way this scene is different is in Jesus' request for a cult. It seems a little bizarre, doesn't it? This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus is described as having hitched a ride on an animal. Jesus walked almost everywhere he went, except for a few times that we know he got in a boat. Yet here, uniquely and deliberately, Jesus rides on the back of an animal. Why? Why catch a ride into town? Well, I'm glad you asked. By sending two of his disciples ahead to fetch a donkey, or as Hansley said in the very beginning, donkey. What even is that? Is that like the Creole pronunciation? Donkey. The whole side over here was laughing hysterically as you made a donkey of yourself, Hansley. Now... Why did Jesus ride on a donkey? Well, it was to fulfill a very specific prophecy. In fact, it was the prophecy that we started in our call to worship this morning reading. Jesus quite deliberately is saying, what Zechariah 9.9 promised has now come about. Let me read it to you. It'll be up here on the screen. Zechariah 9, 9. I think it's coming on the screen. Give him a hand in the back. Good job. All right. Here it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is a prophecy from the Old Testament. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a <laughs> <laughs> on a colt on the foal of a donkey. Now, why did Jesus ahead of time arrange this animal to be ready? Why did he then have it brought to him? Why did he then get on top of it and ride it on his approach into town? Because he very self-consciously wanted to communicate, the king is here. The one Zechariah 9-9 promised has come. Jesus is declaring, that's me. I'm the king. I'm the one you've been longing for, praying for, anticipating the king is here. Salvation has come. This is a momentous moment in human history. Can you think back to the last thing you were really looking forward to? Maybe it was an important birthday, or if you're a kid, Christmas, or if you're an adult and you think you're still a kid, Christmas, or from a whole, for a whole bunch of people in the room, that moment when you're handed the diploma, perhaps your first child. These are things that people anticipate for weeks, months, sometimes even years. But the Jews had longed for this moment for centuries. For over a thousand years, they asked God to keep their promise. Send the King. And now he's here. Parents would have taught their kids, who taught their kids, who taught their kids, who taught their kids. Pray for Zechariah 9.9 to happen now. And it did. The deliverer has come. Jesus riding into town on that animal, hearing hosannas allowing people to lay down their cloaks, the red carpet being rolled out, if you will. Jesus, in that moment, is revealing most fully and finally that He is the promised King. That's the first critical thing that we see in this passage. The promised King has come. And yet, number two, the second thing we need to grasp from this text is that many misunderstand the promised king has come, and yet many misunderstand. Consider if you would with me this morning the entrance of another religious leader into his famous city. When Muhammad entered Mecca in 629 A.D., he entered in this way. One author describes it like this: "Quote. He rode into Mecca on a war horse." Surrounded by 400 mounted men and 10,000 foot soldiers, those who greeted him were absorbed into his movement. Those who resisted him were vanquished, killed or enslaved. Muhammad conquered Mecca and took control as its new religious, political, and military leader End quote. Now that's not too dissimilar from what many people would have thought was going to happen when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Many of them were expecting a military leader. They believed He was entering Jerusalem in order to throw out Roman rule, expelling the pagans so that Israel could return to its former glory and even surpass it. But they misunderstood Jesus would make no such attempt at all. In fact, He would say, keep paying your taxes to Rome. Jesus didn't come to free Israel from Rome, but to free sinners from the wrath of God. It's so easy to misunderstand. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey Because in part, he wanted to communicate in symbolic form that he was there not as a conquering warrior, but as a humble king. See, today, if you were a prominent, important person going to a prominent, important place, you wouldn't roll up in a Kia, right? You would find the most expensive car you could think of. In you come in your Lamborghini, because the nature of the vehicle communicates something of who you are. Friends, why is it that Muhammad entered the city on a war horse? Because he was communicating, I'm a powerful man here to conquer. Jesus came in on a donkey. He haw, He haw. Everybody knows a donkey relative to a horse is a laughing stock. Jesus, by virtue of fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 9, and the prophecy being that He would ride on a donkey, is communicating, I'm not here to conquer the city. I'm here to give myself for the city. He is the king. Don't misunderstand but His victory would be won through His death. Jesus that day carried no weapon. He had disciples, not soldiers, and He came into the city not to kill, but to be killed. The enemies Jesus came for that day were sin, death, and the devil, not Rome. You see, in this first coming, Jesus was fighting a primarily a, a, a spiritual battle, Jesus took His throne through self-sacrifice, not through the slaughtering of people. He was slaughtered that all who trust in Him, turning from sin, putting their faith and confidence and allegiance in Him alone, that all of them would find their sin burden lifted and given a place at the table with this king. But it's very likely that in that moment, as the crowd shouted Hosanna, that not a single person there really understood what was about to happen. He had communicated it to them, but they were so intoxicated by their own expectations they couldn't hear him. They didn't understand that he came in order to die. Frankly, I'm not sure things are much different today. Misunderstandings of Jesus abound. Some consider Jesus to be a great example, a a moral teacher, but not God. To miss that part of Jesus is to misunderstand Him. Others seem to picture Jesus as sort of a, a cuddly Jesus, ever soft and tender. And yet they misunderstand that Jesus is angry towards religious hypocrites, and that Jesus constantly demands total allegiance. Some imagine Jesus as a white American from the suburbs, one who came to make life comfortable, One who's far more driven by nationalistic safism than to build a global kingdom of worshipers. The list goes on and on and on. It is so common that people pick one little aspect of Jesus and pull that out from His real personhood and concoct an image of Him around that little piece of what's true. And friends, when we do that, we no longer have Jesus. Is all or nothing. Maybe the most common misconception of Jesus is that He is a genie in a Bible. That as we take Him and we rub Him, lifting up a prayer wish, and he exists to give us whatever we want. And while it's true that Jesus hears our prayers, that he intercedes for us, praying on our behalf, why does he need to pray on our behalf? Because so often our prayers are stupid, asking for things that aren't really for our good. Jesus is not a genie in a Bible. He is King and Lord. Beloved, remember that you exist for Jesus, not the other way around. We draw our next breath at His mercy and for His glory. He's the King, and we live in His kingdom. Not the other way around. The more we give up a small-minded, selfish view of Jesus, the happier we will be. You see, we were made for Him. We exist to know Him, love Him, serve Him, share Him, enjoy Him. That's what life is about. And so the more we see Him as He is, the more we recognize who He is and what He's done for us, The more we turn from an incorrect, incomplete view of Jesus to one in which we're recovering a more faithful picture, the more joyful and content we'll be. Now, I don't mean that that will mean life is without hardship, but it will be life lived as it's supposed to be lived, life with the real Jesus. May our expectations about Him always be subordinate to what He tells us is true about His person and His work. The promised King has come, and yet many misunderstand. The third thing I'd like you to see this morning is that some are indifferent. The promised King has come, yet many misunderstand and others are indifferent. Look with me again, if you would, at verse 11. 11 seems like such a throwaway verse. And there's a lot there. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Friends, if you're familiar with the scriptures, and of course, if you're not, we love that you're here. I remember what it's like to sit in a service and have no idea what anyone is talking about. So, if that's you, take that Bible underneath the seat in front of you and just start reading it. Even better, ask somebody around you if they'd meet up with you this week and start reading it together. But for those of you who are familiar with some of the backstory, with what we call the Old Testament, that first two-thirds of the Bible, before Jesus came to earth, consider with me this moment in light of the backstory. What is that backstory? Well, the Bible's greatest promise, I think, can be summarized in five words. I will be with you. That is the greatest promise promise God has ever given. That God would even stoop to acknowledge our existence is astonishing, but that God Himself would commit Himself to be present among a people who have rejected Him. There is nothing greater than that, and that is most fully seen in Jesus Christ, that that God would come to earth taking on flesh in Jesus, live in this fallen world, tend to our brokenness, and bear our sins on a cross. Why did He do all of that? He did all of that because He wanted to say, I will be with you. Our sin separates us from God, and so to be in right relationship with God, we have to be cleansed, washed, not on the outside, but at the deepest core. And then in that washing, in that cleansing, we can be welcomed into a right relationship with a holy God. That's what these final seven days of Jesus' life are all about. That's what Jesus came to accomplish Now, what does that have to do with verse 11? Well, his first act when he came into the city was to go straight to the temple. Why? Well, prior to Jesus' coming, the temple was the place on earth where God promised to uniquely dwell. Where at one particular moment in time after it was finished and constructed and Everything was done just right. We'll learn about the temple's uh, predecessor, its precursor, next year because we're going to walk through the book of Exodus together. The last third of that book or so is about a particular way in which God could meet with His people, a particular place, and that set up the temple. And if you'll remember from your Old Testament that there was a moment in which God, in His glory, in a cloud allowed His presence to fill the temple. That people would know, you can always gather here and meet with me. And yet in Israel's history, they turned away from Him again and again and again. They walked away from a right relationship with God, choosing unrepentance instead. And so then in a real tragedy, reached a moment in which the glory of God left the temple, and yet He promised one day He would return. He would come back and dwell again among His people. Guess where that's fulfilled? Right here, verse 11. Jesus, God incarnate, came into the temple. And yet, no one seemed to care. They shouted, Hosanna, save us now, as he entered the city. But then it must have been, in some way, shape, or form, clear oh, he's not doing what we want. And so in the very short time from the entrance up the steps into the temple court, the crowd's gone. The people were indifferent. Yes, it was late in the day. But the fact that Jesus the king came into his temple, looked around, and then went home because there ain't nothing going on. Is tragic. You see, while some people have misconceptions about Jesus, others are indifferent. Friend, I want to encourage you, don't make that mistake. When you get that call on your phone and it says, scam likely, you can avoid that call. When you have a research paper due, you can choose not to go to class. When The IRS sends you a letter. You can even ignore that for a while. But make no mistake. You cannot be indifferent to Jesus. It is impossible to remain indifferent to this king. You see, either he is your only hope in life and death the very center around which everything else in your life orbits. Or he is a liar, a lunatic, and you ought never get up on Sunday morning and come to church again. There is no middle ground. That's it. The promised king has come. Yet many understand, misunderstand, and some are indifferent. That's what Mark chapter 11 verses 1 through 11 teach us. Coca-Cola is one of the most iconic brands. You didn't see that coming, did you? (laughs) It's said that the Coca-Cola logo is... Recognizable to an astonishing 94% of the world's population. How many of you have had a Coke product already today? You're a bunch of liars. Ain't more. Ain't no way just two of you. 1.7 billion, billion Coke products will be consumed today. Bet you wish you had a little bit of that stock. But it wasn't always that way. In fact, in the 1980s, when I was a child, Coke was struggling. Its shares were slipping because fewer people were sipping. Dad joke right there. Right, Abby and Micah? Micah shut your phone off. It's not, my, it's, not my phone. it's not your phone. Enthusiasm for the beverage was slowly in decline, and so the executives at Coca-Cola made a bold decision. Those of you who are alive at this time will remember what I'm going to say. They decided we're going to make a new Coke. And so they concocted a new formula, and for the first time in 99 years, a different version of Coke was put out. Now, I'm old enough to remember this. Going to the grocery store with my mom, seeing this enormous stack of Coke, we bought a new Coke, brought it home, and it was disgusting. The world went ablaze. Now, this was pre-social media. Today, we get lit up about the most idiotic things. And the next day, we do the same thing. And the next day. And the next day. But that didn't happen in the mid-1980s. We had no ability to transfer information that quickly. And so, our stupidity was not as broadly shared as it is today. But everybody was angry whole new societies formed oh i'm dead serious there was there was there were groups called things like the society for the recovery of the real coke it was dubbed as a improved coke But people went crazy. The firestorm lasted a mere 79 days before Coca-Cola changed its mind. After all that work, they had to put out the old Coke. They called it the Coca-Cola Classic. And for a few weeks, you could find both, but pretty soon, the old replaced the new. Evidently, new Coke wasn't better than old Coke. Now, why the Coke lesson? Church, Jesus doesn't need any updating. A rebranded Jesus is disgusting. Let's not be among those who misunderstand or are indifferent and therefore refashion the perfect one as though we could somehow make Him more palpable, better tasting, go down smoother today. Classic Jesus is doing just fine. May we get in line with Him. Father, we pray this morning that as a result of what we've discussed, that people here who don't know Jesus Christ would turn to Him now in prayer, would ask the Father for help, and would come to see and savor Jesus, turning from sin and trusting in Him. And I pray that those who do know Him would turn from areas of misconception or indifference, would quit trying to improve him and make him more palpable to a modern audience and would simply bend the knee and trust him afresh and new. We pray this in Jesus' name.